Now for agribusiness news, markets, and weather. From Studio C, this is Agriculture Today. And so driving the expectation for lower wheat acres, in addition to the lower trend we've seen the past several decades, our winter wheat planted acres that are down 6% from 2023. Factors behind planted acreage, Jake Villeman with USDA. This includes large producing states of Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, and Colorado. Among the top five, only Montana saw acres planted to winter wheat rise in 2024, year over year. For corn and soybean acres, new crop prices currently favor expanded soybean acres at the expense of corn acres. The ratio between November soybean futures and December corn futures, based on the average settlement of those contracts between January 1st and February 9th. The ratio is higher than the last two years, but below 2021. Working counter to this, and preventing a larger drop in corn acres during 24-25, a lower fertilizer prices. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. Um, that was a last trade agreement. That was a, kind of technically more an update than necessarily a new trade agreement, um, but still considered the last trade agreement we passed through Congress, and it did pass overwhelmingly. I think it got 85 votes in the Senate. It was overwhelmingly approved. Andrew Brandt is Director of Trade Policy with the U.S. Grains Council. Moving forward, though, you know, we certainly would like to see, uh, you know, engagement. Uh, agriculture, we have a surplus in the U.S., so we need to find markets overseas to move our product. Um, the Biden administration uh, was engaged in a, what they called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Um, in a sense, this was a way to try and engage Southeast Asia. They've got a growing population, a growing middle class, um, try and uh, create an economic framework to, uh, you know, enhance our ability to access those markets, synchronize regulations like SPS, things like that, uh, was not was not necessarily a, to be clear, a free trade agreement in the sense we came to know them in, you know, the heyday of free trade agreements in the mid-2000s. Uh, but still, you know, a, a, a significant potential agreement that over time could open markets and, you know, perhaps as a stepping stone to the future, probably speaking in decades here, but, you know, something bigger in the future. Uh, unfortunately, that's kind of at the moment. Uh, we'll, we'll say it's on. It's paused. Um, uh, you know, trade is more controversial today than, say, it was a decade ago. Um, but hopefully we'll be able to uh, move past that. And, you know, uh, another point I'd like to make out is that even though the United States is not highly engaged in free trade agreements, a lot of the other countries in the world are still doing free trade agreements. So even though we have kind of... Uh, you know, hit the pause button on signing these things, let's make no mistake, other countries are doing them and, you know, tearing down barriers. And so if they're going to do free trade agreements and potentially give, uh, you know, better market access or lower tariff access to some of these markets, that could, over time, impact us pretty significantly. So do we need to be wary of trick plays? The concept of sustainability is certainly not new, but what we are starting to see more and more, uh, you know, like the European Union, they have, uh, it's, Referred to as a program, I don't know that it officially is a program. It's more like an aspirational goal of farm to fork. Uh, it's not a single piece of legislation, but it's kind of a concept. Uh, we're starting to see more and more of that um, from the sense of, you know, farm to fork uh, at, at, a, at a macro high level is designed to uh, make the food industry more efficient, use fewer chemicals, use fewer fertilizers, be better for the environment, um, which I'm not here to pass judgment on that goal, but I'll tell you this. I know from growing up on a farm, you cut fertilizer, you're probably going to cut production. Um, and if you take away some of the crop protection tools, you're increasing the risk from you know, insects or weed resistance, reducing your yield. Uh, so there's a trade-off there. Um, you know, that's not for us to, if Europe wants to do that to their farmers, not that we would encourage that, but what it really gets tricky for us is if they want to start applying those rules to their imports, thereby trying to make us subject, your farmers anywhere in the world, subject to those uh, rules that 
you know, will be marketed as well-meaning, um, but certainly will complicate things, and uh, I dare say likely to run foul of some uh, trade obligations, uh, specifically as members of the World Trade Organization. So uh, it's still early in that, but uh, and Europe's not the only place we see that. I mean, every country, you hear a lot about sustainability, climate, carbon life cycle analysis, uh, and it's not even just ag, it's you know, across these entire economies. Um, we're, we're not starting here to say that's wrong. We have our own sustainability initiative. Um, but when you start to potentially pick winners and losers of what you let across your border, um, that gets very complicated very fast. In the United States, you know, we've got carbon border adjustment mechanism, carbon tax, whatever you want to refer to it. There are certainly some members of Congress that have started to look into that. Um, I'm not here to say it's going away, but it is certainly a concern that we want the rules written correctly to not disadvantage us. It's Agriculture Today. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. We're here at the conclusion of the National Ethanol Conference in San Diego. I'm with President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, Jeff Cooper. Jeff, it was a heck of a conference. It was a heck of a conference, Cindy. I think this is probably one of my favorite NECs that we've ever had, and I've been to a lot of them uh, in the last 20 years. So this, is, this has been a great event, lots of energy, uh, lots of enthusiasm coming out of this conference for the opportunities that lie ahead. I, I think everybody is really charged up uh, about the bright future that this industry has. Uh, you know, we, we covered a lot of territory <laughs> the last few days uh, surrounding all of the potential new opportunities, new markets, uh, new uses for ethanol, new technologies. Um, and it's just very exciting stuff, very uh, inspiring. And um, I'm looking forward to, to the year ahead. We certainly have some challenges ahead of us. We talked about those as well. Um, you know, I said yesterday in, in my State of the Industry address that this is going to be a year where the rubber meets the road for the ethanol industry. There's a lot of important decisions that uh, we are anxiously awaiting regulatory decisions, policy uh, decisions uh, that are going to have an important bearing on the future of this industry, not just in the short term, but perhaps for decades to come. So, uh, again, great event, great attendance. Uh, we had the most people here that we've probably had in eight or nine years. A lot of first-time attendees, which is very exciting. Uh, so, overall, great event. I'm, I'm very pleased. Well, we're here in California, and one of the things that you did while you're at the event is RFA uh, gave its comments uh, to CARB on their LCFS. So tell about what you do. What did you tell them? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we're in the middle of our, our, our biggest event of the year, and at the same time, we are submitting detailed regulatory comments to the California Air Resources Board. Uh, they had a deadline yesterday for public comments on amendments that they're making to the low-carbon fuel standard. And we uh, wanted to provide our input on what they're doing. We think there's uh, significant room for improvement in the LCFS amendments that they are proposing. One of the particular areas of concern that we have is around new, what they're calling sustainability requirements for crop-based biofuels. And this all stems from their concern around um, you know, certain imported feedstocks and imported biofuels, but they are painting with a broad brush and wanting to sweep all biofuels into some ill-defined new sustainability criteria that they are potentially proposing for the LCFS. We think that would you know, put unnecessary and complex new burdens on ethanol producers without any benefit whatsoever to the program. Um, so that was one of our main comments. Of course, the other one is, why in the world 
do we not have E15 in the state of California? This is the last state out of all 50 states that has yet to approve E15. And if they care about reducing carbon emissions, which is the whole point of the LCFS, the easiest, simplest, lowest cost way to do that in the near term is approve E15. Um, if they did that, I guarantee you, guarantee you, stations across this state would be offering E15 as quickly as possible because it's you know, obviously a lower carbon fuel, but it's also lower cost. And this is the state with the highest fuel prices in the country. And if retailers can offer a little bit of a discount to their customers, uh, as they would be able to do with E15, they would jump at the chance to do that. At the National Ethnic Conference in San Diego, I'm Cindy Zimmerman. Thanks, Cindy. With agribusiness news, markets, and weather, it's Agriculture Today. This is Agriculture Today. At one time, I just looked at the corn price and the oil price as a driver of what might happen in the um, fertilizer market. That's Kansas State Extension Farm Management Specialist Greg Ibendahl looking at diesel and fertilizer price outlooks. Because I looked at uh, the corn price as the demand for uh, what fertilizer might be. Then I looked at the oil price kind of as a supply side because uh, there, there is some trade-off between natural gas, which is the, net, the element you actually use to produce fertilizer, and the oil prices. And that worked really good for a long time. But in about two or three years ago, it got to the case where my model suddenly just broke and it wasn't working. So I, I changed my model to include inflation because I think that was kind of the missing element. And then once I added inflation expectations to my model, I, got, I again got some really good R-squared value. So I was getting, right, right now I'm currently getting like an R-squared value in the mid-0.70 range. And that's really pretty good for predicting power. We could look at negative one to one as being the you know entire range of what the correlation should be. Well, a correlation of 0.7 is really pretty good. So looking at those three factors, the oil price, the corn price, and the inflation expectation. I think my model out now is actually working pretty well for predicting those prices. So why is it important for producers to keep an eye on this? Well, if you look at the expenses for farmers, uh, fertilizer is really the second biggest expense category outside machinery. So machinery is by far and away the biggest expense category. A lot of those expenses are fixed expenses. But then when we look at the, the variable expenses, really fertilizer is the most important one there. You know, farmers have a, a lot of money uh, tied up in growing a crop, especially for something like corn or grain sorghum or wheat where you're putting a lot of nitrogen on your, on your product. So those, those, those crops use a lot of fertilizer and and whenever those prices go up, we see a corresponding hit to the farmer's bottom line because that's going to show up as a higher input cost. So we know some things that can affect the price, but what are others? Well, you know, there is some demand side there, too, and, and what the mix farmers are going to grow. So, you know, when we see the prices for grains, you know, maybe favoring more corn production, then we're going to see a bigger hit to the farmer's bottom line there because they're going to have to apply nitrogen, whereas if they apply grow soybeans, they won't have to do that. So th- those are the other factors that go into that, besides just the fact that, you know, what the fertilizer price actually is, is how much you're going to be using in total. So with skirmishes and wars happening around the globe, can international conflict affect prices as well? Well, you know, again, looking at the fertilizer price, oil is a big driver there. So whenever we see oil prices go up, we're going to, we're going to see a corresponding hit on the fertilizer side. So, you know, uh, we got, we had fertilizer prices go up well above a thousand dollars a ton for anhydrous at one point. You know, they have since backed off quite a bit here. 
And over the last few months, I think uh, anhydrous now is currently in the mid $800 range or so, somewhere in there. And that, that kind of corresponds with what my model says it should be. So really, as long as the oil price stays in the $70 range, I think you'll look at fertilizer prices being pretty steady. Again, a lot of it's going to depend on the inflation side, too, here. So as long as we have kind of maybe kind of got inflation down to the 3 or 4% range, I think you're looking at you know fertilizer in the $800 range is probably pretty realistic here. But again, if something would happen to the oil market and we would see oil prices jump up to above $100, then you're going to see fertilizer prices jump up again pretty high. Same on the inflation side. You know, I, I think there's some reasonable hope that maybe we kind of got away from this near double-digit double, double digit inflation and we got looking at inflation maybe in the 3 to 4% range. Well, that's the case I think you're looking at pretty steady fertilizer prices. But again, you know, if something would happen to inflation it would jump back up again, then you're going to see fertilizer prices go up as well. Kansas State's Greg Ibendahl. It's agriculture today. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. So just kind of furthermore on, on what I do with the growers in this instance, we approach, we focus on protecting our point of profitability. Like that is the biggest thing for me. You have to know a grower's cost. Speaking at the recent USDA Ag Outlook Forum, NG Setzer. We talk all the time about the cost of production. We talk all the time about ways that we can help to trim those costs or ways that we can smartly look at offsetting our risk when it comes to establishing what those costs are. And honestly, it's key to building a marketing plan. It is the cornerstone of everything that we do because it's not one of those things. You don't market to to lock in that, that break even. You market to protect your break even. You market to protect your point of profitability. And that's what I work with growers on is knowing what their break even is, what their target margin is, and then doing working on plans to make that happen. We use scale selling using an incremental approach, break the crop up into smaller, more manageable chunks, and we put target orders in. That's what we're doing right now. We're looking at the likely targets on the chart. We're looking at what could happen when the market turns around, what kind of gains we've seen in years past when you get those nine out of 10 year rallies from May 1st to July 1st. We're getting prepared and we are being engaged to make sure that when this market does do what it does, because it could be very fleeting in a year like this, we're going to make sure that we are hitting the, the opportunity to mar- lock in profit as much as possible because we recognize the opportunities are going to be short-lived. One of the things that I always kind of push to my growers, 5 to 10% rallies in bear markets are sometimes all you get. And so in corn, that's 40%. And beans, it's a buck. That's nice, right? But honestly, in a bear market, if you can get 5 to 10%, we tend to be pretty happy. We always market keeping our non-negotiables in mind. That's space, that's quality, that's cash flow. And so when you're holding physical commodities, you don't just throw them in a bin. You have to get them into condition, and you have to keep them in condition. You have to make sure there aren't any bugs. You have to make sure that you're able to to meet the cash flow needs that you have, the bills that you have, all of these things. And so those are the things that I talk about to farmers with, to my agribusinesses, my independent agribusinesses that I'm working with. What are your non-negotiables? What are the things that you can't trade around? And time's also an important factor. So ways that you can help in the room. Right? Because there's a lot of you that are like, what do I do? How can I help? What can I say? You need to support policies that support domestic demand. That's renewable fuels. 
That's renewable fuel usage. That is all of the things that we can come up with, whether it's SAF, whether it is biodiesel, renewable diesel, whatever that may be. We need to have policies that will help to support domestic demand because the world producer is going to continue to produce and they're going to continue to grow their rate of production simply because of what we can do with yields, what technology is doing from an overall production standpoint, all of these things. We want to stay consistent and united in ag policy. It's very difficult. One of the things that we're most worried about, right, is that if we get a new administration and all of a sudden we're going to be undoing a lot of the renewable fuel things that we've done over the last few years. We have to figure out ways to protect these policy decisions that we're making. Infrastructure spending. If I could yell anything from the mountaintops for anyone that's involved in policy, infrastructure spending is key. We have the highest quality grain in the world. We need to ensure its ability to be moved into the world because if not, other people are. Ukraine spent hundreds of millions of dollars of, on improving infrastructure, even in wartime. I mentioned Brazil. You have all kinds of investments all around the world that are, are really impacting um, or really p- making them more competitive, more available in the market structure. And that's super important. And that's something that we want to be looking at. It's agriculture today. With Agriculture Today, here's Tony St. James. We're here at the conclusion of the National Ethanol Conference in San Diego. I'm with President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, Jeff Cooper. Well, of course, we had uh, Secretary Vilsack here, and um, he made some comments particularly about E15 and and the approval by EPA of nationwide uh, of year, year-round sales. So just comment on some of uh, Secretary Vilsack's remarks. Yeah, again, um, you know, I think there's a, a little bit of a good news, bad news story there. Uh, Secretary Vilsack seemed to confirm some of the rumors we've been hearing that, you know, EPA is likely to approve the petition from eight governors to allow year-round sales of E15 in their states, which is great news. We've been waiting on that for years now. Um, but at the same time, it sounds likely that they are going to delay implementation of that until 2025. So that leaves us in a lurch for 2024. Summertime is just around the corner. What's the marketplace going to do with E15 uh, come May 1st and, and June 1st? Now, Secretary Vilsack did mention he thinks it's likely that we will see uh, emergency waivers or some sort of uh, allowance from EPA this summer to sell E15 nationwide and year-round. And, of course, that would be great news. But long-term, we've got to resolve this Uh in a way that provides certainty to the marketplace and stability. So we're not dealing with this every spring, wondering what in the world is going to be allowed and what the rules are going to be when summer rolls around. Well, there was so much at this conference, but but one of the last things we had here was on trade. And we had a USTR's ag negotiator here, Doug McCallop. What did you think about what he had to say about the potential for increasing exports? Well, I was very encouraged, again, by his comments. Uh, our, our theme of our conference was powered by partnerships, and, and the U.S. Trade Representative's Office and, and uh, Ambassador McCaleb have been great partners to the industry, to RFA, when it comes to building new markets and, and opening new markets. And he really did uh, discuss some of the positive progress we're making in, in, in Latin American countries, um, some of the developments in Japan that are leading to growth and demand for our products. Uh, but he also addressed some of the barriers that we continue to face, and, and namely Brazil. We still have a, a, a punitive tariff against U.S. ethanol in that marketplace, and so we're not exporting much, if, if any, to, to Brazil. 
Uh, and he also addressed China, which at one time was our largest e- export market, um, and talked about some of the challenges there. But it, it was clear to me that USTR is hard at work um, in looking for ways to resolve some of those challenges and, and continue growing the global marketplace for ethanol. Again, there was so much here, and only positive comments. Everybody was thrilled. A real timely and important uh, schedule agenda that you had. Well, I, I think we've done a good job of finding the right mix of, of topics. We, we have some that are a little more technical in nature and a little further in the weeds. Um, we have others that are you know really false, uh, focused on the policy. Um, you know, we had Charlie Cook come yesterday and talk about the elections and the outlook for. Uh, you know the, the presidential election in November. So I, we, we, I think we've uh, struck a good balance of subject matter and topics that are of interest to a, to a wide range of people, and that's why we're seeing our attendance continue to grow. It's why we're seeing new people come to to the conference, um, and, and we're going to continue building on that. And next year you're going to be in Nashville. Next year in in Nashville, Nashville for the very first time. We've never done the NEC there before. We're very excited about that. Uh, judging uh, from the comments we got from attendees, they're very excited about being in Nashville next year. It will also be the 30th annual National Ethanol Conference, which is uh, you know pretty exciting for me that that 2025 is going to be the 30th year of this conference. So we're going to make sure we celebrate that, and, and we're looking forward to that event as well. At the National Ethanol Conference in San Diego, I'm Cindy Zimmerman. It's Agriculture Today. Ag News Now. Agriculture Today. Market power contracts. So what do economists have to say about it? And you're probably checking your watch and deciding whether I've said anything at all so far. In a recent discussion on cattle contracts, Rachel Goodhue with University of California at Davis. So what can contracts do? They can make uh, production economically feasible for farmers and buyers. Some people argue this. And particularly, geographic limits may lead to a symbiotic relationship. What does that mean? It means you need to have enough people raising cattle, feeding out cattle to a sustain your processing plant. But if you've only got one plant in the region, which we've heard about, your uh, farmers are being locked into a single buyer. And uh, the other point that I like to make here is, doesn't mean that every farmer raising cattle, feeding out cattle, is going to be in that symbiotic relationship. If you're the buyer, how many do you need? You need enough to keep your plant operating at capacity or whatever share of capacity you desire. All right, so maybe symbiotic, but not always, and not for everyone, I would argue. Then we want fewer buyers, the lower the price, all else equal. We've heard about that. And it holds for what people get from contracts, just like spot prices. And then the third one we've heard about as well, interactions between spot price and contract pricing. That's another prediction that's, you know, consistent with what people expect if you actually operate in a market. Um, then the last thing is, and again, part of the problem here is we do have this uh, spatially, spatially uh, isolated, geographically separate uh, plants, which gives them more market power. But in cases when there's uh, more than one buyer in an area, if there were perfect information, if contract terms and the structure of each contract, not just individual terms, was perfectly transparent, then farmers should be able to expect the same return no matter their buyer. And I'm not saying it's a good return. I'm not saying it's a bad return. I'm saying it should be competed to be the same, okay, across the buyers. But on the other hand, if contract terms aren't public, the market's not transparent, that information's not being transmitted, and so you might see farmers capturing different returns based on to whom they sell. And that, again, accentuates that transparency can interact with market power in terms of um, 
making people more informed about their options and reducing the effective extent to which uh, buyers can um, choose not to compete. So knowledge gaps, um, how many options are available? And I'll say this, you can, you can go out and see the number of processing plants, but you can't see how many contracts each plant is operating under, right? If you look at the cattle contracts library, just look at the percentages, and you know it's not one contract per plant. So then in, if it's with these multiple contracts, how different are the terms? We don't know. Don't know how important the uh, share of contract purchases is in the total and the determinants of the profits under contracts. How frequently are these contract terms used? How much money is associated with them? And how frequently are bundles, sets of contract provisions included? We don't know any of that. Okay, cattle contract library. The goal is to increase transparency and um, the so it's providing information reported by the packers. And uh, it's for the covered packers. We've heard about that. Um, aggregated nationally. Now, one of the things that's important to me is that the, in terms of thinking about what gaps this addresses and doesn't, is the contract terms are reported individually. We don't see anything about the structure of a contract. You can't piece together a set of terms that's used, to, used uh, in conjunction with each other. Nonetheless, it looks at, it addresses some of our knowledge gaps. And I want to say it here is that there's a trade-off with protecting confidential business information, which we, we heard about. And so the idea is it's so concentrated that perhaps to address some of these gaps is going to be revealing confidential business information. It's Agriculture Today. You're listening to Agriculture Today. A set of investments in rural America. The announcements Wednesday in North Carolina, provided in part by Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. We are, in fact, expanding significantly investments in expanded broadband access in rural places. We're looking at ways in which we can improve the quality of water and wastewater systems. From an economic development standpoint, if you don't have a good water treatment system, if you don't have a disposal system, it's pretty tough to introduce economic opportunity into your community. So we're investing in that. We're investing in a wide variety of opportunities for expanded housing and ways in which we can encourage and improve quality of life through community facilities. Total investments in 216 new projects come in at over $772 million and are expected to benefit more than 1 million rural citizens. That includes projects funded through the federal government's Collaborative Rural Partners Network aimed to address issues in rural underserved communities. I'm Rod Bain reporting in Washington, D.C.